being a maximum lawyer, um, very interesting from the concept of the community that's been built by Jim Hacking, my guest today, as well as Tyson Mutrix, his co-creator of Maximum Lawyer. Is that the right terminology there, Jim? Sure. Perfect. Of all the legal communities I've come across, this is the one that I vibe with the most. It's that concept of wanting to be a great attorney, wanting to run a great firm, but also be there for each other, be there for your family and those you care about. It's not just that like money, money, money grab that you see from so many other lawyer communities. And that's why I'm excited to have Jim on today. We're going to talk about being your maximum lawyer, finding that for everybody and what that truly means. Uh, any of you listening to this who don't know Jim, Jim received both his BA and JD from St. Louis University. In 2007, he devoted most of his practice to immigration law. Jim handles cases involving spouse and employment visas, citizenship, asylum, and deportation. He's been active in local civic affairs and has successfully litigated numerous cases involving green card delays and naturalizations. Since Jim began running, uh, began practicing law in the St. Louis area in 97, he's been a volunteer attorney through Legal Services of Eastern Missouri, one of the founding members of the St. Louis chapter of the Council on American Islamic Relations, where he served as executive director for two years. Also served on the U.S. Army's U.S. Attorney's Hate Crime Task Force. Sorry, man, I cannot read. And currently chairs the Muslim Task Force of the American Civil Liberties Union of Eastern Missouri. In 2009, he received the Eugene H. Butter, Booter, Butter, Booter, Booter Award from the ACLU of Eastern Missouri as a Volunteer of the Year. Um, and this bio provided by Jim's team, I don't think does him justice because he's also taught to a number of law students to create a great generation of future attorneys. He's created the Maximum Lawyer Group, which I think has what seven, eight thousand people, plus the Guild, plus helped a ton of events, plus brought so many of us together. And truly, hearing the story of so many people in that group has really made life so much better for hundreds, maybe even thousands of lawyers, and then obviously for their clients by helping them show up better. Thanks for being here, man. I'm glad to be here. Thanks, Jordan. All right. I'm going to talk about our last episode briefly. We had David Nagel on. Very cool chat. Um, David is like the go-to mindset coach. I actually didn't realize that he wasn't only working with attorneys because I know so many attorneys that rave about him. So we talked about the three mindset shifts to double your revenue. Um, great episode for you to, to listen to after we check out today's episode with Jim. All right, Jim. So I'm curious, what is a maximum lawyer? Like, where did this where did this nomenclature come up? So this actually arose about six and a half, seven years ago when I was in my maximum gym or maximum me phase. So I was in this phase where I, I wanted to look at my life and all different aspects, um, physical, spiritual, financial, um, all, all different, six different aspects of my life. And Tyson and I were trying to come up with a name for the podcast. We wanted to start a podcast for lawyers. We were sort of thinking along two lines, which are two of the main books that I read um, when I started my law firm, which were Crush It by Gary Vaynerchuk and Tribes by Seth Godin. Gary V always talked about just document, don't create. And so Tyson and I would have these great conversations. He had actually taken my class on running a law firm. And we had these great talks one-on-one -on -one about how to do this in your law firm or do that. And he started a few years after me. And so I said, we should turn this into a podcast and record it. And so back seven years, six and a half years ago, we started the podcast and we and we haven't missed an episode since. So we've dropped one episode every week for six and a half years. Oof. 
Talk about some consistency there. Yeah, especially for a three follow through. So I'm a 10 quick start and a three follow through, but luckily Tyson's a high follow through. And, you know, once, once you get that streak going, you don't want to let it break. Yeah. I love uh, Jerry Seinfeld talks about the uh, writing a joke every day and making the X and then you just can't have the calendar without the X. Yep. So I want to dive into this a little bit more detail, but I am curious because I talked to so many lawyers that are in the same boat as you and I quick to jump through these things, you know, to get into this stuff and then tough on the follow-up. Um, what, any tips, tricks, wisdom, insight in terms of helping people actually execute on these things consistently when we have these grand ideas? Well, I think one thing that's important is to avoid what John Acuff calls the the noble pursuits. Like sometimes we do these things because we think it sounds good or it'll make us look good or it doesn't really move the needle. So one thing I think that's important is to really pick stuff that moves the needle, right? So I have a, a YouTube channel where I've done tons of videos and I've I've definitely used Jerry Seinfeld. I literally used Jerry Seinfeld's calendar and I marked it every day on a desk calendar for a year and a half. And I I think that's important. I think having an accountability partner for me, I, I probably, if I'd done the podcast by myself, it probably would have lasted like most podcasts do three or four episodes. So having a partner, having a set schedule, setting aside time for it, recognizing it's important, knowing why you're doing it, all those kinds of things from a mindset standpoint, keep you going. I love the, uh, you know, you're talking about the the maximum gym from the health standpoint. I'm, I'm right there with you. You know, if you have the gym buddy, it's so much harder to, even if it's just to text that person, I'm not going to make it today. It's so much harder than if it's just you and you're like, yeah, I'm hitting this news button. I'm sleeping in. Yeah. I love it. All right. So y'all come up with this name. You start the podcast. What was, what was the first moment that you were like, man, we're onto something here. Yeah. So um, it's interesting back then Tyson and I were trying to build our law firms on uh, the back of a piece of software called Infusionsoft, which was a sales software, sort of like uh, PipeDrive is now, or Lead Docket, or one of those. And it was great for sales, not great for operations. But we thought that we would start the podcast and then um, be Infusionsoft resellers. Well, that that didn't go anywhere because Infusionsoft wasn't good for it. And um, around the time that we decided to just do the podcast for the sake of doing the podcast, people started. I think Tyson heard about it first because he was in court more than I was. And, and a judge said something to him and a lawyer said something to him and people started noticing here in St. Louis. But the funny thing is even now, especially now we have listeners all over the country and we have a very small following in St. Louis. And I think the reason for that is because there is a particular kind of lawyer and a particular kind of law firm owner who appreciates, like you did, Jordan, in your introduction, um, what it is that we espouse and what it is that we think is important. Um, we're not for everybody, and that's okay. Um, that's I think part that's of, ideal. You don't want to be. Yeah, that's Seth Godin's tribes mentality, and that you know, we, the people that are with us will love us, but the people that don't, they just could care less about us. So, um, and then that's okay. And so, um, I think that we tapped into a what Gary Halbert would call a starving crowd that there were law firm owners out there who had taken that entrepreneurial leap they had had that Michael Gerber's entrepreneurial seizure they decided they wanted to open up a law firm and then they had a few months of success because they had backed up a bunch of cases right before they left 
And then reality sets in about seven or nine months later, and they're saying to themselves, what did I get myself into? And then that's where the loneliness comes in. That's where the headaches come in. That's where the need for systems come in. And people were looking around for people that were going through the same thing or had gone through the same thing. And, and we're just, I always say that we built the group that we needed. We built the tribe that we needed. We wanted to have people in our lives to share this with. And, and I have this thing about wanting to try to ease people's suffering. So I think the the work I do as an immigration lawyer and the work that I do running Maximum Lawyer with Tyson is sort of the same thing, just in different flavors. And uh, full disclosure, I'm a moron. For so long, I thought e-myth was electronic. You know, we have e-filing, we have e-discovery, and then obviously whatever it is, 15, you know, uh, three pages in the book or 15 seconds into it, it's entrepreneurial myth. So anybody out there, if you thought that, uh, you're not the only one. I'll uh, I'll admit that. So you've got the community going, you've got the maximum lawyer thing. So I, my question to you is from a listener standpoint here, like how do you help a lawyer figure out what they truly want? Well, that's a great question. And that brings up one of my favorite episodes of the show. And there's a question that I ask myself often. And there's a question that I think lawyers should ask themselves often, law firm owners. And that is, that those four words that you said, what do I want? And I think that there's great value in asking yourself that question four times and to put it, the emphasis on each word each time. So what do I want? What do I want? What do I want? And what do I want? I mean, those four things, I think that's a whole framework for where you're headed. Right. I think that it really distills down um, in the different inflection points of that question. You know, I think that too many people are just going along and not really reflecting on where they're going. Obviously, when you first open up your firm, you're just running around crazy trying to keep the lights on and doing whatever you can. But in those moments of solitude or quiet or breathing or driving to work where you can reflect on what you want to build. Um, I think that's where the real power comes in. It's it's very easy to get caught up in the urgent matters of the day, but you've got to set aside time to figure out what you want and then reverse engineer it and say, well, how do I get there? I mean, I do that all the time. I do that now, right? Like I'm doing it now with our planning for next year. You know, what what does it look like? What's it going to take? How do we do it? and then work backwards. And I want to uh, I want to highlight, I love the way that you phrase that with the four things. I think the third one is the one that I talk to the most lawyers struggling with is the, what do I want? It's not the, you know, oh my God, what will my parents think? What will my colleagues think? What will whatever, but what do I want? I think that's the one that we uh, sacrifice the most. Great, love it. All right, so um, I want to go into deeper so you're talking about like, walk me through kind of your firm planning uh, process. You were just outlining it a little bit from working backwards, but go a little bit deeper for that with me if you can. So at our firm, we follow the traction model of planning. So we have a 10-year big audacious goal. We have a three-year vision and we have one-year plans. And then we break that up into quarterly rocks and quarterly goals and quarterly meetings. Um, I think that it's, you know, we set aside time, we go off site 
for a full day, three times a year, and for two full days at the end of the year to plan out the next year. Um, we have revenue goals. We have case sign-up goals. We have goals in all the different aspects of the firm. And we're a work in progress. We, we're plenty messy. If your listeners came and watched some of our staff meetings or our leadership meetings, you'd be saying, these people are crazy, but that's just that's just part of the price of admission. I love it. When you say we go, who who is the we? Yeah, so uh, historically, um, well, when I started the firm, um, I hired a young lady who was 18 at the time. She's still with me. She helps run the firm. Her name's Adela. She's an immigrant. And she got her, since starting to work with me, she got her associate's degree, her bachelor's degree, and her master's degree. And she got it in HR. And so um, so that, so Adele and I were the whole team and grew the firm from the two of us in 2007. Um, and then in 2016, my wife joined us. Um, and I'm a 10 quick start. And my wife, Amani, is a one quick start. She's a nine follow through. And I'm a three follow through. And Adela is even. She's six, six, three, six across. So she... She can talk to Amani, she can talk to me, and she sort of bridges the gap between us. But once Amani came, then there was balance in the force. And, you know, Adela had been saying forever, Jim, we really need to have a procedures manual. Jim, we really need to have meetings. And I was like, man, you know, that stuff sounds great. That's really important. You guys do it. Go ahead. You want to do it? Go ahead. I don't I don't have much interest in that. That's not where my energy comes from. But I, I recognize the value. So when Amani came, um, there was somebody that I had to listen to, and it it sort of helped make things less crazy. And when you say a quick start follow through, we're talking about Colby Serie A. Okay. Exactly. If to so anybody listening, I think the Colby test is like forty dollars or fifty bucks. It gives you so much insight into yourself. I highly recommend it, and I love the way that you phrased it because I don't know. I, I think there's a, a different Colby that's designed more for the interplay. But I think that if you get everybody on that, the Series A, you'll have a better understanding of where you're missing out on the the quick start ideas, the follow through on the execution, you know, whatever that looks like. Yeah, everyone in our firm takes Colby and we actually laminated it and put it on people's front door of their office so that when you're going into their office and you say, oh, I'm going to talk to Kaylee. Oh, she's a high fact finder. I better know my shit and bring it in and, and I be, better be able to outline my position and my arguments or Jim's a quick, high quick start, he's probably not going to follow through. We need to make sure that we have uh, check-ins to make sure that things are getting done. I love that so much. All right. So you've grown this. So the we that do the planning, you've grown this leadership team? Yeah. So so it was Adela and Amani and I, and then this year we promoted one lawyer to be the supervising attorney and we got me out of the day-to-day marketing. So we hired, we promoted our, a marketing director. So now we have five people on our leadership team. What so that, that leads to a great follow-up question. Actually, let me let me not be so biased. Then, like, what's your position called, or what's your role in this team? You've got four other people supporting the different stuff. Yeah, so I don't practice law anymore, and um, I'm the visionary for the firm. I I play in marketing, but I'm not in charge of marketing. So I create a lot of the content. Um, I still do. I do a live show four days a week on YouTube, and I create. YouTube videos, I do TikTok and I um, do podcasts and stuff. But um, as far as the daily operate, and I'm on leadership, but um, I'm the visionary, Mani's the CEO and Andrew 
is the managing attorney. Maho handles marketing and leads, and Adela runs uh, HR and what we call DOD, which is um, she like does all of our operational development. So like when you come to the organizational or the accountability chart from Traction, do you give yourself a seat underneath the marketing for the content creation role or you just have that as part of your, okay. Yeah, I'm way at the bottom though. I, I uh, It's hard because I do set a lot of the tone for marketing, but um, but that's just because of the content piece. But as far as the strategy and the logistics of it, I, I don't do any of that stuff. In a weird way, it's like so much fun to be the owner and get ordered around in like a very specific window though, right? Like I have delegated all these like things to, to other people. I like to think of myself as the fun uncle. Like I do, I, I'll, I'll talk to people if something, if a hard conversation needs to happen. But for the most part, especially with marketing, I just like to go in there and giggle and be silly. Well, and I find it, you know, you mentioned it as the fun uncle. I just, I find so many of these firms that have the best culture, the leader has that humor to it. Well, I think if a law firm, if a law firm and its members aren't laughing regularly, then that's probably not a very healthy place. Makes total sense. Yeah, like I think of uh, Craig Goldenfarb with the red nose and doing the Marlin ads and all that stuff and then winning... I think they're like three years in a row, best place to work, like not just of law firms, like across all of um, wherever they are in South Florida. Uh, just very, very interesting stuff. All right. So you got the planning meetings, you've got the, you know, you're doing the rocks, you're doing the, are you like, you're casting into a 12 week year for the rocks? Like, how did that part go? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we, we do the quarterly rocks. Mm -hmm. And so where does... Like, where does your, where do your personal goals play into this? Like, how do you set those into the vision of the firm so that we can help people become, you know, maximum lawyers as, as fully formed people, though we're all works in progress. So my special power is solving issues and spotting issues and like quickly fixing things. Like I can look at a situation, people will come to me and they'll have been scratching their head for a couple of weeks or a couple of days trying to figure out how to do it. And I'll say, this do this do that do this and that and then and they're like holy shit yeah that's great and so that's sort of my special power and that's what i wanted what i wanted i wanted to be captain picard i wanted you know he said he would say make it so like back in the old days i wanted to talk to a potential client sign them up and then give it to a team member and have them run with it and solve the problem um i don't do as much of that anymore just because i'm not involved in the case signups and the logistics stuff um, but still my role now is, you know, people come to me with sort of more complex things and I tell them what I think and then off they go. But from like the personal side of it. So like, obviously for those of you that, that don't know, Jim, I mean, you've lost 60 something pounds over the last, what, four months now, 75 pounds, mm -hmm. 75 pounds. Fantastic, man. So like when it comes to things like that from the from the personal component, like did you have to change any of the things about the firm goals? Did you have to change anything about your role in the firm? Like how are you able to incorporate the maximum lawyer stuff and the firm stuff and personal stuff? And you know, you're flying around and hanging out with the family across the country too. Um I get up really early. <laughs> so I work out at five in the morning. Um, I don't know, it just all sort of works out. I'm probably doing too much stuff, but 
I mean, I'm out of legal operations. I'm out of case sign up. I used to think that I was the only one who could sign up cases. Now we have a lead intake team of five people plus two lawyers that just sign up cases. They don't work on cases. So um, I, I helped build out that system and got out of it right now. I'm sort of working on that leads team, fixing that a little bit and then working with marketing. But um, I build in time for stuff like this. I, I, I know there's plenty of lawyers who are like, I want to be trying cases until I retire. And and that wasn't me. I was. I said to myself, "Boy, I've been to 212 citizenship interviews. Am I really going to learn anything on citizenship interview number 213?" And I said, "And we have new attorneys here who could learn a lot by going to their third citizenship interview." So, I I have never had a hard time delegating. There are a lot of people in Max Law who have a hard time delegating, who have a hard time justifying hiring other people. I don't know if it's lazy or I think more so that it's just. I know what I like to do and and I don't like to do things I don't like to do. I think like, I mean, it's scary. It's scary. It's scary to go through the hiring process. There's a dating-ish relationship type component to it. You know, are they going to accept my job offer? Are they going to be a good fit? And then it's scary to, you know, put your case in somebody else's hands in, I don't mean this in a, in a delegation of the role, but like regardless of how your policies and procedures and your accountability and your tracking, whatever, it's still like your bar card on the line with somebody else. I mean, I think that becomes a lot of it. True. True. And you got to have good oversight and you got to ease people into it and you got to trust them and you have to have good systems. You also have to let go of the fact that you can make a mistake too. And you're not perfect. And, you know, the goal should always be, you know, give some autonomy, but give some guardrails, give some supervision and give some grace if they make a mistake don't go all ape and and if you make a hire and it doesn't work out doesn't mean you should never hire again it just means you didn't make a good pick yeah you um you know you said something probably four or five years ago at this point we talked about like if you know the the old saying if somebody can do it 80 percent as well delegate it and then you added the that gives you more time to get it up to the 100 percent. but i think since then we've come to realize you can actually find people to do it 110 percent as well as you would do it anyway from the beginning. There's definitely been times, especially as I eased out of practicing law, where I said to myself, this associate is doing a better job on this because they're hungrier than I am. And, and it was true. They did a better job than I would have. Well, and you get, you know, you get the fresh eyes. So you've got a, you've got a system that, like you said, puts in those guardrails, but then every now and then, you know, they'll see something different because they're looking at why the guardrails are there. They're looking at why the system is that way with a, you know, fresh perspective. For sure. So what would be like, look, we talked to, we, we both talked to a ton of lawyers that are struggling. What are some of like the most common struggles, complaints, issues that you see over and over again? Great question. I could do, we could do the whole show on this, but one, one for sure is that I 100% believe that almost every law firm is understaffed, including mine. And we have 51 team members, right? So I think we ask too many people to do too much stuff. Um, I think that there's a, a, always a reluctance to hire and that people usually hire too late. And I think they leave money on the table. I think the reason that we've been able to grow is because I'm willing to hire people a little bit before I need them as a motivator to go out and get more cases as opposed to other people say, well, once I get more cases, then I'll go hire someone. Um, and I can't tell you how many times 
someone said to me, uh, hey, I'm thinking about hiring person A or person B. And I say, hire them both. And they're like, what? And I really mean it because lawyers spend, law firm owners, typically the ones that we talk to, and these are ones with growth mindsets, spend so much time doing stuff they shouldn't be doing anymore that it really hinders their growth. If growth is what they want, but even if they don't want growth, having more people can make your life better, can make your your output better, can make your systems better. And I really think that people cut off their nose to spite their face by not bringing in people soon enough. Yeah, well, and it's, there's a, there's a specialization aspect to this, right? Like even PI, requesting medical records, do we do it a hundred times a week? If you had one person who requested every medical record, if that was like their sole thing, they would be such an expert in it and they'd be able to build relationships with the, you know, 15 people they're asking the most records for and getting the stuff in batches. And like, there's the economy of scale component to so many of these jobs instead of us having people dabble in, you know, 47 different things. Yep, for sure. And, and I mean, I know that people get really hung up on the cost and they say to themselves, oh, I can't afford $75,000 a year, but you, of course you don't have to have $75,000 when you hire them. You just have to be able to pay them that over the year. And so, you know, if you, if I free you up, if I free up 60% of your workload, can you use that time to go out and, and hire someone, hire someone to do that work so that you can then go out and sign up more cases. And it's all about leverage. If you're not, if you're not tapping into leverage, you're, you're not doing it right. Yeah. I always talk about it from opportunity cost. You know, yeah. same, same thing there. And it's like, I, it's, it cracks me up. You know, if you could, like, I could probably sit down and give you an exact value of every single one of my lunches. Like if we talk about, you know, that or top golf for most of the connections versus that generating, you know, 800, 1.2 million cases, I could say like, Hey, every one of those hours is worth five grand, six grand, seven grand. So like, if you're sitting in your office doing a, even 350 billable hour, you're costing yourself, you know, $4,700. Tyson and I had a guest on the show. His name's Ali Bilson, and he said something that has haunted me to this day, and that is that most entrepreneurs do not have the capacity to meet the opportunity before them. And I really think that's true when it comes to law firm owners, that they think small, they think tight, they think conservatively when if they open things up a little bit. You know, um, Adele and I are going to be speaking at the Legal X conference for, or I guess it's called Lex now, for Filevine. And our topic is called, how far can we go? And that's the question I always ask myself, how far can we go? What's our limit? Can we break through the ceiling that we're at now? Can we, you know, and we've, we've doubled in size each of the last three years. And so I just, I, I, I'm, this is part of my compulsion and I'm probably a little bit of an outlier, but I want to keep going. And this is what I said with my weight loss coaches. I want, I'm, I'm in it for the, I'm in it for the adventure and I want to see where this ends up. I'm not trying to micromanage each step of the way. I love it in it for the adventure. Um, and I want to be clear because you actually have cut your practice down to just immigration in, in variation to you growing the firm so much. So like, we're not talking about firm owners ex necessarily expanding what they do. You're expanding how you do it. You're expanding how your firm can support people you're expanding like talk to me through some of that stuff yeah two things on that one is i have every time that i've niched down i've made more money so every time i've gotten rid of practice areas 
um, I've, we've gotten faster and more efficient and better. That's one, that's one thought that I leave with your listeners. The other one is that until you own a practice area in your market, until you own it, I don't think you need to be thinking about satellite offices or, or other practice areas until you own what you say you want to own where you live. What's your definition of owning? To where you feel like you've saturated the market, where you, there aren't more cases out there. Not that you have to crush all your competition, but people want to market five different practice areas to a, a public that gets their eyes glaze over and they don't know what in the hell you're talking about. You know, we have such short attention spans now that people need to think, when I think of of Jordan or Heather, I think of personal injury. When I think of personal injury, I think of Jordan or Heather. When I think of immigration, I think of Jim. When I think of Jim, I think of immigration. That's how basic it has to be right now. And the more that you can make that, like the more specific you can get with that, the more memorable it becomes. You know, for the PI lawyer who's focusing only on accidents involving, you know, Amazon Prime trucks or semi trucks, like there's the more you niche down, I think the more you earworm your stories into somebody's brain to capture even you know that one step out from the niche. And you want people to think that you're obsessed about this topic. It makes you more referable. It makes you more relatable. It makes that connection between you and that one word stronger. Um, I want people to think, and it's true, but I want people to think that I think about immigration all day long. Right. That um, when if Congress is doing something, if the courts are doing something, if my clients are having something happen, if people are on my show, I'm thinking about immigration all the time. That's one thing. The other thing is, I really think that effective marketing involves having somebody as a boogeyman, as an opponent, as an enemy that you can market against. I think the best way to market is to market against. And so for me, I always had USCIS. I always had the the agency being so dysfunctional. I always had, we used to call President Obama the deporter in chief because he had deported more people than anyone. And never in my wildest dreams while I was there dealing with the Obama DHS, did I ever think that there could come upon, we could come upon a villain or a boogeyman to market against. Like I didn't even have to do anything. Donald Trump took care of it for me. So um, you always, if, you know, and if I'm doing personal injury, I would, I would, I would spend a ton of time talking about, you know, how insurance companies screw over people. I, if every report, every, every single bad faith reported case, I would make a video about. Wait till you hear what they did to this poor bastard in Atlanta. Wait till you hear what they did to this lady whose house burned down. She, they, they tried to blame her kid. Can you believe they tried to blame her kid? And it was just so that they could get out of, I mean, they, just so they could get out of um, paying a claim. Like, I would and 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 you've got to tap into that that anger. You got to find that in yourself to to otherwise you're just going to be boring and it's just going to be we just tried a case and we we got a verdict and oh man was it great and here's our happy client. As as an aggressive law firm, as a client-centric law firm, we put our clients first. No, I'm with you. The um it's so interesting. I mean, I love, you know, I think you have a great ability to flip things. You know, like we hear about this marketing thing. I love the flip to who are you marketing against? I love the flip to like, who's not your client. I love the flip to, you know, what I think you talked about something um, like, what are some of the issues your client doesn't know they have that you can address, um, you know, you can help them with. That's just some fascinating good. stuff. Always good. Always good to talk about, you know, the, like our best performing content is always 
secrets, tricks, schemes, um, hidden, you know, all that. So if you, if you let people know that you have inside information on what they're trying to deal with, that's going to go a long way for clicks and eyeballs. And the reality is we do. I mean, like yeah. it's illegal to practice law as not being a lawyer. So there is a, there, they have, we've created this ivory tower for so many of these things. We've created this insider knowledge and truly you can share it to people that don't know about it in a way that is super helpful for them. And if you study it, you're going to know it even better than regular lawyers. If you, if you, if you said to yourself, I'm going to know about every bad faith case that comes in in the, in the United States in 2023, I'm going to track every, I'm going to do Google alerts. I'm going to do whatever other ways, you know, um, AAJ or whatever. I'm going to track every one of these and I'm going to create content about every one of these. If you do that for a whole year, not only are you going to educate potential clients better, not only are you going to um, have a clear message, you're also going to educate yourself and you're going to be a better lawyer. Well, and right. And, and you're going to educate other lawyers. You know, I love, we had, uh, we had Ryan Locke on in one of the beginning episodes talks about, he wrote this super long thing on the high tech act. So helping um, rules that require the disclosure of records at a certain price point or whatever. He was like, I got so many referrals from it because you'd have the attorney in, you know, Oregon finding his thing. And then when their client got injured in Georgia, they'd send them on over. And it was an amazing way for him to be the expert build the brand, get eyeballs, get cases, build relationships. Just a, you know, crazy thing to hear. For sure. I've had, I've, I've created lots of content about a case and people reach out to me thinking that it was my case. It wasn't even my case. I just, I just created content about it. The other attorney did not. So people call me to ask me. Well, and as a lawyer, I think a lot of times it's easier for us to talk about not our own cases. We can go deeper on things. We don't have a confidentiality question. Right. Yep. I love that a ton. All right. So, um, you know, we talked about the, okay. So I, you talked about being understaffed and uh, having most law firms be understaffed and doubling your um, staff over, you know, every year over the last few years. So like, what are some of the things you have your staff doing? I mean, I can't imagine it's not all doubling your cases to double your stuff. There's got to be like extra things you added to the process, extra touch points, extra benefits to the client. So th this will make you happy. Jordan. Yeah. So our marketing team is as big as our operations team. So we have five people on our marketing team. We have seven people on leads. So talking to leads. Um, and then we have our finance team and then we have operations. So, um, you know, we, uh, we have our leads team sort of vet the leads and then pass them on to lawyers. Those lawyers do not handle cases, which I, is one of the things I always try to say on every podcast. I think until a law firm breaks the connection between those signing up the cases and those doing the work, they will not experience significant growth. It might be linear growth, but until you say, hey, we, and this is all from Dean Jackson, hey, before unit, which is the before unit is getting people to raise their hand until the time that somebody hires you. That's the before unit. Hey, before unit, your job is to deliver as many qualified cases to the during unit as possible. But if, if I'm, if I'm uh, an operating lawyer, if I'm a lawyer in operations and I have three asylum cases on my desk and those are fact intensive, a lot of work involved, and I'm talking to a lead and I have one more asylum lead on the phone and I'm like, shit, I, I haven't even gotten these three done. How am I going to do a fourth one? You might not be all that hungry 
to sign it up. But our leads team, you know, they have expectations and numbers and they, they cheer each other on and, and they have a monthly goal for the team or the, the leads team. So I think that until you make that break, and this is true if it's just you, until you make that break and you're, and you're doing that work, you're just going to really stifle your growth. Well, you have all the, you know, all those attorneys we talked to that talk about the ebbs and flows, you know, the really busy months and the lean months. It's because you followed up so much more. It's because you felt the emotional pull of needing to sign up this case to make payroll in the months that were lean. And then you got busy and you pulled back on all this stuff. Right. Yep. Yeah. It's just, it's, it's amazing to me the, like, I am conscious of so many of my faults. The problem with me is how many of them I'm unconscious, you know, I'm, I'm unconsciously un- or unaware of. Uh, and I think this is one of them, you know, you're sitting there in that moment thinking, you yeah, know, I don't know that I really want to do the work on this case, or I don't really know that I'll be able to because of all the other things instead of, you know, getting it signed up and having somebody who has the bandwidth to handle it, that isn't, you know, stuck doing both. The other big problem, I think, for a lot of law firm owners, especially those that haven't found the guild or haven't found maximum lawyer is that they're operating in their head and it's a pretty isolated place. They don't necessarily feel like they can tell everything to their team members. They try to, they hold a lot of stuff in. It's, it's, it can be depressing. It can be disheartening running a firm. It can be lonely. And so I think that a lot of it is that people just sort of try to soldier through and don't really, um, don't really have that outlet for the frustrations of law firm operations. Yeah, it's funny. I'm, uh, I'm literally in the middle now of this book called Finding Your People that I thought was about, um, that I thought was about like marketing, finding your people. But really she talks about like, I've lost so many friends and how did I, like, how do I find the right people to connect with? Um, And it goes into like, we are, it's funny how she talks about like, it's funny how we think we are uniquely lonely instead of we can all be lonely together. Yeah, for sure. And again, that gets to the zeitgeist that I think Tyson and I caught, which is that there's all these law firm owners who could be connected electronically, who haven't connected electronically. And then of course, once they've connected electronically and they meet in the real world, I mean, you, you've you seen the power of that on your road trip. You know what it's like to pull into a town and have electronic friends and then to meet them in real world. And you've come to the conferences and you know the energy that develops. And so um, there was a real need for this. There's still a real need for this. I think a lot of people are walking around sad, not just law firm owners, um, but that people, you know, it's, you know, you've heard this a thousand times. It's, we're the most connected and the most disconnected we've ever been. Yeah. Well, and, and then you, you graph that onto a legal industry. That's five times the national average for suicide. And I think we're three times the national average for depression, which actually I think goes up during law school and comes back down. You are less statistically less depressed as a lawyer than you are as a law student or something. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah. So where like the, the isolated loneliness is that something like the solution to that being connecting with other people, the solution to that being how you run your firm internally? What, like, what's the. I, I did a little post about this today, which you commented on, which is it's saying it out loud. It's admitting it. It's, it's being conscious of it. It's being able to, to name it and, or put, because I think when you name it and you say it out loud to another person, uh, one, it loses some of its power. Number two, it puts a fence around it because it's not this unending thing. You've said it out loud. It's a real thing. And then you can start to deal with it. So um, I think it's a real problem. Um, my buddy, Gary Berger is on the 
legal assistance program for Missouri. And, you know, I've, I've had two or three attorneys that I know commit suicide. One of my old mentors, it's, it's a, it's a really real thing that we don't spend enough time talking about. Yeah. Well, and it's, and like, look, we are, there are two adversarial professions. There's law and there's sports. And in sports, you've got the head coach, the position coaches, the trainers, the therapists, the sports scientists, the everything. And then as the law firm, you've got the judge who doesn't want to read your motion, opposing counsel who thinks you're lying and wants to run circles around you and a client who's aggravated that this is taking so long. And who thinks you're stealing from them. Yeah, exactly. So what's like, what's the solution? How do we, you know, we can, we, we connect, but like, how do we solve this problem at, at scale? Well, you can't look for all of your life satisfaction out of your job. You can't. I, there's this lawyer that I used to work for that I grew up, I grew up with. And he, that dude can't talk about anything other than his cases. Like you could be at his kid's wedding and he'd be talking about his cases, I'm sure. So you don't want to be that guy or that lady, right? You want to be centered. You want law to be part of your life. I've been, I'm a big proponent of therapy. I've been in therapy for 18 years. And I think that you've got to find meditation practices or exercise or ways to get releases in ways that are completely outside of your firm. If you're looking for all of your satisfaction from inside your firm, you're in big, big trouble. Well, especially in a very results-based industry, you know, you can do the, you can do the best job ever, but if the facts aren't there, you, then you're going to beat yourself up over the end result. Well, and, and you could win 10 cases and lose one. And most lawyers I know tend to obsess about the one they lost or the one negative review or the, you know, one piece of mail that came in that's negative. I mean, what do you, you know, that that's just sort of how we're built. Plus lawyers really like to control outcomes and a lot of law firm ownership is not subject to immediate control. And so that there's a dichotomy there because a lot of people are high fact finders trying to control things. And it's definitely a different skill set from being a good lawyer than being a good law firm operator. Yes, I've, I've, I have learned that lesson every day and have for, you know, seven years now. For sure. So as we get towards the end, what else do you want to make sure we cover? What other pieces of advice do you want to make sure we get to our listener watchers here as we uh, get to wrapping up? Well, let's see. Um, I think that people do not tap into their individuality enough that they're sort of disconnected from their body. They're sort of disconnected from their spirituality. And therefore, they just sort of follow the crowd and do what everybody else does. And I think that there's great value in spending time figuring out who you are and what you want, that question that we asked ourselves earlier, and then building the law firm that you want. You can, I mean, I just went to lunch with my cousins earlier today, and I showed up in my sweatshirt and my my uh, sweatpants, and they're like, "That is, are you off work today?" I'm like, "No," and they're like, "Well, did you just come from the gym?" I'm like, "No." I said, "This is how I dress," and they go, "This is how you go to work." I mean, they all work in offices and for big companies, and I'm like, "Yeah, I'm the boss. I can do what I want." And they're like, "What? You go to meetings like that?" I mean, yeah, I said, "I I just put on long pants for you guys. Usually, I'm wearing shorts." So, um, you know, you can build exactly what you want. You can build exactly what you want 
and 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 that's very very powerful now i say all the time that you know you're your own boss and no one can tell you what to do that's a great thing and the, the curse is you're your own boss and no one can tell you what to do so i think that it's good to have guardrails it's good to have uh boundaries it's good to have someone that sort of holds you accountable like my wife amani does but within within those boundaries you can really build something cool and there's no reason you have to trudge through operating a law firm there's no reason for it there's all the resources in the world in maximum lawyer and outside of maximum lawyer there's all the resources um, for you to build a life outside of the law you don't have to do this for 80 hours a week and you're not going to be very effective if you do i i the i obviously you are preaching to the choir as a dude in a hawaiian shirt shorts and and uh flip-flops i want to be clear to people though I definitely get pushback from potential clients or even not potential clients. You don't seem professional enough to do my marketing. Uh, you know, I can't, I wouldn't hire somebody who dresses like that and great. Awesome. Cause I'm going to do 10,000 other things that will piss them off during the case. I would rather them like weed themselves out from a social media post or a video or a comment I made online than like get here and do a consult and join, you know, join our firm or hire the marketing company and then have the problem come up. Well, and that's a great point, Jordan. I'm glad you brought that up because that's also one of the curses of not having enough clients. If you have enough clients, then you don't give a crap if people don't like your Hawaiian shirt. You don't care if people don't like your flip-flops. Not only do you want to say, like, to me, that your your shirt is a good uh, way to repel the people you don't want. And that's definitely a big part of marketing is you want to repel the people that you don't want. So those people who's ever getting uptight about what Jordan is wearing when he's thinking about a marketing campaign are the same people who are going to get uptight about the bill. They're going to get uptight about the website. They're going to be hard to please. You know, it's a great, I, I love putting up little hurdles for potential clients to see how they react because the truth is we've had many kinds of clients go through the exact same thing. And some people's immigration cases take two years. Some people, you know, they, they, handle that with grace and dignity. Other people get all bent out of shape and blame me, right? So the the job of good marketing is to find the people that I want to work with and to repel those that I don't. How dare you, Jim? I know the clients that hate you, you want them to stay around as long as possible. That is definitely what you are aiming for. No, I don't want them anywhere near me. I, know. I, literally, I, literally, I literally am so tuned in right now. I can sense their energy and I just don't even, I, I got a guy, I was trying to help him track down his immigration file. He sent me an email apparently on Tuesday, today's Thursday, I didn't get back to him. And he sent me this long email this morning saying, how dare I not respond to him when I'm helping him for free to track down his files. Like we're not going to be able to work together. Best of luck to you, brother. So, you know, it's just, ain't, ain't nobody got time for that. Yeah, no, totally. And the, the one, so I want to give a little insight or my, my two cents on, you're talking about like being the boss and, you know, not being able to be ordered around. I have found an intern, a law student, you know, somebody who is like the, the lowest rung in your organizational chart is often the best person to order you around. They don't expect to stay long-term. They don't need this job. They don't feel like they have to pander to you. And like, oh my God, them, or even like a VA in another country, be like, you need to make me do these three things every week is the easiest way for you to get over some of the hurdles. That's great. That's great. We you know one of the problems we've been having is having someone, having everybody keep track of their time every single day. And I'm thinking about hiring a VA just to just, that's the only thing that they do. And you know how you were talking about expertise and getting medical records, like 
they could figure out, run the report, see who didn't put in their time and start nagging them so that it happens every day. I mean, I'd rather have a better system for that and might come up with one, but that's what I was thinking about laying in bed this morning. Yeah, totally. And you like, you make it their job. They are the, they are the time entries are, or what, you know, whatever you want to call it. Um, and it be, and then I think it becomes kind of fun because you create this, you create like a little bit of an internal struggle between them and who's not entering the time, but in a sort of fun way, like there's a way to do it in a, you know, who got caught this week by the czar, you know, who got what, whatever, who got the nasty. And whoever, uh, whoever, whoever runs the streak the longest without getting caught gets a prize or something. Yeah. I love yep. it. It gives you the, uh, you know, you talked about what you want to market against. So what do you want to get employees to operate against, operate against getting uh, yelled at, not yelled at, but, you know, caught with their time. All right. So uh, our next episode will air next Thursday, 1215 at 515 Eastern time. So a little bit earlier than this episode, we've got Michael Delon on talking about the three A's to a better law firm, authority, authorship, and awesomeness. And here's how I'll give Michael credit. I get like cold spam pitched all the time online. Michael had such a great one that I talked to him enough to have him on the show. So I'm super excited to hear about, you know, writing a quick book to set up the authority um, from Michael's background. I'm very in- interested to see uh, this episode. I hope you all will be as too, uh, will all will be as well. That being said, Jimmy, we've had you on for 50 minutes or so. For anybody who has been here that whole time and remembers nothing that you said, what would be your biggest piece of advice, your most important takeaway, the hackings hack, the Tyson tip, the gold diamond nugget of wisdom for uh, helping as many law firm owners as possible be the exhibit A of a successful attorney such as yourself? Trust your gut. Figure out how to get better in touch with your intuition. And you don't have to hire a coach. You don't have to do all this reading. The answers are inside you most of the time. And if you can settle and be quiet and find a little space, the answer will reveal itself to you. It might be as you wake up in the morning. It might be when you're taking a shower. It might be on a long walk. But the answer is in there. If you can be quiet for just a little bit to let it surface for you. Yeah, I uh so John Mullaney has a skit about canceling plans being cracked for adults. For <laughs> business owners, trusting your gut and then finding the number, like and then running with your gut and having the numbers reflect that your gut was right, that's crack for business owners. Nothing makes me happier than you know that random gut thought that turned out to be properly effective in the way that we wanted. Awesome, Jordan. All right. So thank you to everybody who is watching and listening to it. Hope to see you back next week for the three A's to a better law firm authority authorship and awesomeness. Jimmy, thank you so much for the time. Thanks, brother. It was great being with you. All right. I think the